We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Boule de Swift, a short story in the Franco-Prussian collection of short stories that Maupassant wrote. It kind of catapulted him into being the writer and being able to sit down and focus on his craft, if you will. This is the one that made him the money, put him on the map? Well, to retire to write, right? Because yeah. uh, he had served in 1870 through 71, and I think he writes realism really well. I think he gets people. Oh, he definitely gets people. He gets the core of how we are terrible. <laughs> and this story proves that we are a terrible species to each other, especially to each other. I love, hate this story. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, we'll get into that. So what I like about the beginning is we start out in Rouen, and I figure for plot and discussion, we'll just kind of go through it together at the same time. But the plot doesn't open up on characters, right? It's, it's how's this town reacting to war? Right. You've got this town that's getting ready to be preoccupied. The the army has pulled back, which means the enemy is going to come in and take over, in which case the citizens are preparing for how is this going to impact their lives? And you can even see how the, the town's even kind of announcing their their objection to war, that they're like, we have nothing to do with this, but it's going to encompass our entire lives soon because we're pawns in the bigger system. I think of myself in this situation, if there was a war rolling in, would I want to stay and fight knowing that the army had already abandoned us, me, my family? Would I want to stay and fight? And I think that uh, it's a good setting piece for everybody's in a very traumatic experience right now, and they're all just trying to get through it. And I think that a lot of times as a reader, we start thinking about, you know, wow, are these people so dumb? Well, if you've never been in a situation this stressful, this high stress before, you you do kind of just you're you're dumber in those instances. Your brain isn't going to be fully functioning, and I I think that I, I love the setting that he he provides for us at the very beginning here without even introducing any characters. Ultimately, we arrive at ten people who are preparing to leave for I th I think it was England. I might have gotten a little confused at that point in time. Were you sick reading? <laughs> but I couldn't help but wonder why these ten individuals. Right, you got the three rich individuals in terms of Mr. Iwazo, you got uh, Mr. Kerry Lamadou, and you've got Mr. Hubert de Bravo. And their three wives who are barely characterized, right? These are property to these men. These are less than human beings. They're being thrown in the back like luggage into this cart. So obviously the very first big theme that you could take away from this is a class distinction. Uh, my passant is saying that there are levels of people in France during this time period of war and that these people see themselves as better because they are the aristocrats. They're the people that have money and wealth and power. And they get the full beautiful names, which you said very elegantly. I'm impressed. Uh, and yeah, you, you definitely have that theme going right on. And what strikes me as interesting is that 
Well, it's, I guess it's not interesting. These people don't get any better. They just, they are who they are and you kind of have to take it or leave it. Yeah. Well, and even are they who they think they are, right? Because you have the good sisters with the rosary beads who you expect to be holy and putting certain things forward in terms of what they think is right. You've got the Democrat who's kind of like the the guy that stirs the pot. You've got, uh, of course, <laughs> our girl, Ball of Fat, who is eventually we learn as Miss Elizabeth Rousseau, who is an ex-prostitute. So we've got 10 mixtures of characters, right? We've got the wealthy abusing the lower class, not even viewing them as human beings, including their wives. You've got the, the Democrat who's stirring the pot, causing issues. You've got the people who are pious, who ought to believe more than others. And you have the prostitute, right, who theoretically should be the lowest on the social scale, right? She's, she's a fallen woman, a woman who sold her values out uh, for, for money. Oh, and they do treat her like that. They, they, they do treat her. They ostracize her from the very beginning, and they, they, they treat her very poorly. They look at poorly. They don't even talk to her, acknowledge her. Uh, the wives are giving sidelong glances. Even the poor and rich wives because they're wives, they have something in common. And that's what, as humans, we're always looking for these connections. And all right, well, we're not rich together, but we're both married. So we have that in common. And that makes us better than this lady that is a prostitute. So, you know, we have that in common. and That's good for us. And then, of course, we're all religious, except for the prostitute, because, you know, she's sleeping around. So we have this connection with the nuns as well. And, and I felt like that that was, you know, very standard for sometimes of how we are in life, especially in this time period of how people were making those connections. And the, the nuns are ones that make me, I think, maybe the most mad because you figured they would be forgiving of of Elizabeth and and they're almost the worst. And it, it kind of makes me angry of like, you're, you're in this situation and you're almost worse off than than she is as the nuns are, are sick. And I, I don't know, I they, they, well, I they should have been more forgiving. Is it, is it not true that each member almost betrays what their intent is? Because the wealthy men, they, they're, they're, are they really actually good businessmen? Because they, they leave through the snow, and it's like the first big conflict is, we brought no food. We, we thought we would just trade for things along the way, and then as they're going along the way, nobody's willing to trade with them. Like these men are already failing at thinking ahead and knowing like their resources and how to bargain, so they're they're failing at being business leaders to begin with. I don't think that's their fault. I think that one, you're in a stressful situation. You're 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 not making smart, good choices. They've never maybe been in this situation. We don't know or not, and they did plan. They're just their their plan has failed to no fault of their own. Just they didn't realize the gravity of the situation, the severity of the situation that they'd be put in, I feel like, of why that this happens to them. And I'm not trying to stick up for them, um, because as we see as the story goes along, they they do eventually make smarter choices in that regard, at the end of the story anyway. Well, I, I agree with you, because uh, earlier you made the point about how war changes things. It's very all-encompassing. And I think that's kind of what these men were experiencing, right? Their usual laws of how they bargain and trade have been completely flipped upside down because of the war. Yeah, but everybody is not prepared except for our girl Elizabeth, ball of fat, who pulls out a picnic basket and has all these prepared foods and everything. And what does she do? She shares with everybody. 
I suspect we're supposed to view her as caring for others. And I think there's probably an element to that. But they also, there's an element of going to back to that theory that war changes what's allowed and not allowed. They made those jokes about eating the largest person in the carriage, which is her. Like, let's eat the, the prostitute. So she might feel a little uh, singled out, too, that maybe she's buying some friendship since she knows she's kind of the outcast because of her position and uses this as a tool. I think it's supposed to be somewhat altruistic, but I think there's some self-interest motivation there. Is an, is you, you can interpret it that way. Oh, I never thought of that. Yeah, so she's she's buying friendships, kind of paying off bribes, saying, hey, maybe they'll be more accepting of me if I give them all this food. They'll view me as a better person because I save them, I help them. I mean, they're not going to starve to death, right? I mean, the, the journey isn't that long. They would just go really, really hungry. I mean, this is not like it's a month's month journey or anything, but yeah. So they arrive in totes after 13 hours, to your point, of traveling. And they hear, dum bum bum the Germans opening up the door. I think we see a couple things here in terms of the order that they get out, even though Elizabeth is the closest, you know, she's the last to get out, right? She wants to be the, the one that opposes the enemy the most. She's the one that actually saw the enemy at the gates and tried to have them, you know, they're trying to lodge with her. And that's why she left. Um, she's the one that I think has the most connection and most opposition to the war, which is kind of like this this tapestry behind every single scene. I was a little bit confused on why is she so vehemently against the war? Is she just, she's that proud of a person, even though we're made to believe that everybody else looks down upon her because of her profession. She's just a, a, a proud French woman, I guess. All Maupensant gives us is that she was fleeing when they tried to stay with her. Right. And, I think it comes maybe down for how I interpret it is that it's a a personal choice. Like she chooses who she sleeps with, right? Because we see as they get at this inn at night, we kind of see how Cordonette's kind of like trying to sleep with her. And she's like, no, there's people, there's the enemies at the gates right here. Like we can't do this right now. It's her choice as to whether she sleeps with someone as opposed to how everyone else views her as a tool, views her as, well, you ought to just use your, your, you're spreading of your legs essentially to buy us things. That's your commodity and your value. And I think she views it as a much different transaction than, than how the rest of society is viewing it. Definitely on her, her choices. The, the crux of the story is that she's always making these choices and they break her essentially, right? When the, the pure pressure of everybody of that, you should sleep with these, the German commander in order for us to be safe, and she ends up doing it, at least that's what we're led to believe in the story. Real quick, because we didn't explain this plot point, is that at this end, they learn that the officer will only let them leave on their journey, continue on their journey, the German officer, once she's slept with him, right? Just from like a plot clarification standpoint. Yeah, so she does, because the whole group, the rest of the group pressures her into doing this, and it kind of breaks her. And, like, and that isn't even the worst part of the story, I feel like, because... Yes, she loses a little bit of herself because maybe as a prostitute, she always got to choose who she would sleep with and, and, and use her body as a commodity. And now she's being forced into a little bit. But I still feel like the end is even more cruel than, than this part of it, as, as crazy as that sounds. Well, isn't it a little bit weird, too, that you know earlier we saw how the, the three rich men couldn't bargain the way they did before the war or change the value of things? And here, when they get to this inn, that's still true. 
those three wealthy men have the most value, can buy the most things, can give the most things in terms of, of to, to this German officer. But they're the least valuable to even the German officer. Theoretically, the woman with the least amount of things is the prostitute. And that's the one, the key to liberating them, to, del- to their deliverance, as, as Poisson writes. And it's again, it's this flipping of during war, there's this strange difference in what we consider valuable. I could also interpret it as not only value, there's a little bit of maybe gender discussion here that we could have, and the power of men and women, or the power of the prostitute. Uh, she is the one that is the least powerful. She's the, the one that, that can't make decisions, and she doesn't have the man in her life, yet she's the one that holds all the power in the end of the story and allows them to move forward. Isn't it interesting, too, there was a line there about Bonapartism with we need a savior, right? Like when they talked about having to need a Bonaparte or a uh, Joan of Arc, right? The idea being that deliverance, saving came externally, that it wasn't a personal choice or something you could influence. They said, we need someone to save us. And to your point, it comes from the most unlikely of places in this story. She's the hero. And then they do her dirty at the end of the story. So once they finally leave, they get back in the carriage and they go on their way, right? And she kind of sulks out of the the hotel or wherever they're staying. She's the last one to get back in the carriage again and has her head down. And, you know, she she's ashamed of what she's done. She used to be kind of proud. And now they have broken her and they all have food for the journey. And she has none. And what well, even, happens? Even, even real quick before that, though. How they sold her out, how they sold her out. You'll notice that they all started using the ends to justify the means. And it was super hypocritical to your point about those two nuns that you mentioned in the beginning of our talk, how they instantly just shifted on a dime and started to use Bible stories in very questionable ways to justify how she should sell her body to buy them freedom in this situation. Like, it's another conversation about how war changes uh, ends to a mean and utilitarianism as a new norm as opposed to morality kind of just exiting the door. And the only person in the story that I think kind of tries to hold on to the old ways is Ball of Fat, is Elizabeth. Yeah, and, and to come back to, you know, poor Elizabeth as she gets in there and has lost her pride still trying to hold on to it. You know, she looks around at these people and they all have this food and they won't share with her. And she shared with them. And it, it's, a, it's a hard lesson for life that people don't change. And some people aren't going to become better. And maybe you shouldn't trust them or you shouldn't help them. Because what does she get for it in the end? She lost who she was. And now she's hungry. And she has the rest of this journey to go with these people that are even looking further down on her. Oh, Maupassant, you're killing me, man. They did Elizabeth so dirty. Oh, I love hate this story. Well, I think a lot of people confuse charity with IOU tickets. Just because oh, okay. yeah. Elizabeth was was charitable and helped everyone out on this this trip, you know, maybe a little bit of fear too. Eat eat the fat, right? Um you can't expect that to turn into an IOU, you'll notice. They sold her out lost her depravity, her her sense of morality. I'm not sure how you want to classify that. But then even the food at the end, you know, like you'd think that 
they'd have some guilt over what they did. And there's just this stone faced group of individuals who have ultimately betrayed you and now look down upon you for how you save them. <laughs> Man, people are the worst. <laughs> well, okay. So let's talk about the last thing is the uh, national anthem that's whistled at the end, the Marseillaise. Yeah, I was kind of wondering, obviously we're talking a lot about one's self-identity and that French nationalistic identity that they're better than everybody else, but they're all French together and they threw one of their own to the wolves, to the Germans. Uh, I, I think that it's a little bit of irony that they throw in the French national anthem there at the end of like, everything's hunky-dory, we're all French still, but they definitely don't view one of their compatriots as, you know, even French or, or lesser than. Like you figure in the hierarchy here in the story that at least Elizabeth isn't German because she's French and they don't even give her that much. Well, what is the, uh, what's, what's the anthem about? When, when was it created? Oh, this is the French Revolution. Which was about? The rights of people. Yeah, overthrowing the monarchy and, and gaining rights and having the freedom of choice and food. They, they were starving and... Oh, 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 well, hang on. We just hit a lot of points there, right? Yeah. Never giving up. So who is the only character that never gave up in this story? Elizabeth. Okay. Having food. Who's the character that had food in the beginning of the story and shared it as opposed to others that had food and wouldn't share, a.k.a. the, the distribution of food. Who's the only one that kind of saw the distribution as the right thing to do? Elizabeth. Okay. The true patriot, the one that, oh, that yeah. left because she was French. Now, who are the ones that were looking for deliverance from Bonaparte, from Joan of Arc, versus who was the one that was actually fighting in this situation? The first estate upper class. No, no, no. People. I mean, in, in this story, who was the character that was actually fighting as opposed to just giving in and hoping for saviors? Oh, the, the Democrat. Well, Elizabeth, the she was guy. the one that, no, Elizabeth, she was the one that was fighting for everything. The Democrat almost did nothing. He was, he filled his role of like, he was supposed to stir the pot and he didn't even really stir the pot that much. Um, Elizabeth was the only one that fought for things, more or less. Okay, yeah, I, indirectly. Okay, I can see that. So to me, the the national anthem about what it stands for in terms of uh, that that wealth share, the inequality of imperial, you know, imperialism. I guess in a sense, um, I'm not choosing the right word here. The the idea that the the monarchy aren't given the right that anyone could to do good, uh, to always keep fighting. Elizabeth stood for all those values, but she's the one that was sold out at the end. And I wonder if if Cordunet was whistling that almost as like an ironic turn that she sold out all of her values for naught. You know, and in history as well, uh, to kind of go down that avenue a little bit, is in the actual Tenecourt oaths and, and when all of this takes place in the French Revolution, women aren't included and they have to write their own rights for women and the citizen and they, they have to try to push for this as well. And you see the same thing kind of happening fear for Elizabeth. So Maple Saint, man, he, he's, a, he's a, a great historian, you know, weaving all this inside of his story. It's beautiful. Bon is a great writer. We'll leave a playlist of other talks of his down below. Appreciate you spending some time with us. Please feel free to subscribe. Ona out. Peace. <laughs>